This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me, you not gonna do nothing, you are not above me, I bet you wish you was me, I know it, I know. What is poppin' everybody, and welcome back to another special episode of the Only Friends Podcast. Well, you know, I'm here. With these smucks that are laughing because I can't say special correctly. You're special friends. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, at this point, we anticipate him saying the word special just to see if he can yeah. do it. And every time he does not let us down. It's, it's great that now every episode is a, is a special episode. Right. I mean, they were all special. <laughs> I'm just happy that uh, this bit will cancel out the Tortuga bit. Oh, no, 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 is in the building and you already know it guys and the number two the guy that's always raining on my parade yeah so these great bits that's what that i'm we saying have. like now now you have this stupid tortuga thing that we all hate <laughs> but it's it's going to be a thing because you insist upon it i don't hate it man therefore i feel, I feel a sense of pride and accomplishment in that when conrad posted a picture of him doing the tortuga thing in the group chat that my response got a reaction from Everybody in the chat. I don't remember what you said. I, I said it's somehow more annoying in chat. Uh, that, than was, oh, yeah. that was hilarious. That, that was actually well, facts. The, the reason I said it is like it was like all of the horsemen of the apocalypse saw this message <laughs> and reacted in a certain way. And it's the you only one got, in the chat that got that that got that kind of appreciation. You just got the laugh from Corey. That was the thing. Well, it was like, <laughs> Corey responded to it. Matt, you, everyone, like re reacted to it. It was like the hilarious. Corey is definitely the validation that we're all looking for. <laughs> yes. Corey is very sparse with his he, uh, yeah, he, approval. He doesn't give his approval off easily. So uh, That's how you know he, you did that, good. That was, his, that was his subtle way of validating that it's a very annoying thing Conrad He does. did not say that. He was just saying that was pretty funny what you said. <laughs> he didn't say it. Right? He just alluded to it. <laughs> no, he did not. Corey Gasson probably loves the tortue a bit. It's the best thing the show has. Oh, we got going. I hope it's not. I hope I don't come here every day just for people to hear this Tortua bit and be like, man, I really miss this on my Tuesday. I do hope that it turns into like a chant throughout the halls of the WSOP this summer. Nah, bro. Bring it. Don't let him cook like this, bro. Bring it. Let him fucking He's going to come into the main with his turtle or with his turtle costume because it's not a tortoise costume. It's a turtle. Why can't it be a tortoise costume? Because it looks too young. Wait. Tortoises are like old. Well, they, they're, they're young at some point. <laughs> like, you're going to walk they through the halls. Well, no, I, 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 th I think it's point that tortoises live long. They do live tortoises, long. Tortoises, or turtles don't necessarily. Yeah, just like Brian and Turnerance, hopefully. You're going to walk through the halls of the main, and people are going to have their own summoned by Conrad, just get like Party City, a bunch of these maracas. <laughs> sure. He's, he's going to walk in, take a seat, and everyone's going to yeah. be like, right. it's like a rainforest. I'm gonna, it's going to be like Phil Humuth-esque uh, yeah, like Phil Humphrey's Gim suit, Darth entrance. Vader type he shit. He might yeah. just bring the uh, the Brazilian rail in with him. You know, they're, just <laughs> yeah, gonna be, Tortua, they're gonna be feeling a, a party. If Tortuga makes a final table, oh, you know, man. oh it's gonna be. On. It's gonna <laughs> the be. The Moroccans would be popping. I'm in for it when that happens. Well, yes. guess what? You better, you better get on be. board for the rest of the days. Laman <laughs> is like a grade A railbird whenever it comes to yeah. final tables. He comes with a six pack of beer in the fucking backpack, <laughs> ready to get the party started. I also need you there to, you know, uh, run ICM calculations. <laughs> Wait, hold on. You're not the backpack guy. You're not the Dolak's backpack guy. Dolak is the backpack right. guy. That's yes. Right. For sure, Dolek's gonna come with with like a twenty Bud Lights in in his. Uh, yeah, he brings some bag. road sodas with him. <laughs> Smart. Road sodas. Smart. 
You got a cooler. Well, the, pay, wait, the, waiters won't, the waiters won't serve you when you're on the rail. So somebody's got to bring the beer. They will sometimes. No, the player has to fucking order like a dozen yeah. for you guys. And you always oblige, yeah. which I appreciate that. Are you serious? It. They won't? No. Wow. They absolutely will not. It's wild. I can't for the life of me yeah. understand where this policy came from. <laughs> like, because, yeah, because then the player just orders them and then just gives them to them. And also, it's like wherever the final tables are, it's not like densely populated ever. Mm -hmm. So it's not like as if they're taking business away from like the the, the paying patrons right. or anything like that. Yeah. And as a waiter, you're there working for tips. Like, why are you ever looking yeah. someone in the face like, but nah, I think, man, I can't think do maybe it. because then the word gets out that anybody can just show up and just drink their faces off and they also have otherwise a bar. it's like it's you got to actually know the person at the final what's the table. cost there they also that we have, have drunk people hanging out by a final table there like let's fucking go wanted characters that show up that's all i'm saying they, they literally <laughs> also have a bar like right outside that in that new one yeah right outside yeah and they would rather you know imagine you them, imagine uh, a bunch of unsavory for a beer um, a bunch of unsavory characters show up off the strip, walk the long <laughs> hallway down into the new Thunderdome room and get a little wrecked on the rail because they hear there's free beer. It just sounds like the <laughs> poker community anyways. Yeah. yeah I it mean, kind of does. Honestly, there'd probably just be a lot more people on the rail also. That's what I'm saying. Let's get it popping, baby. 98 yeah, days, true. guys. I can't wait. Wow. I mean, you can for 98 days. I will wait. Yeah. I have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> It starts today. <laughs> Brian has started the WSOP today. Yes. He's starting to walk there today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, get the, I'll get there by uh, You'll get there by the main, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's start today off with a few news notes and uh, corrections. So first, <laughs> I, I want to acknowledge that uh, during yesterday's podcast, we got a few things wrong, we according did. to Statman Andy. Um, <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. Just, I just opened up our chat with this is him. Very important. And I just see, do I need more? This is very important. Okay. So, uh, first of all, I misspoke. I must have said Muggsy Bogues, and I actually meant Spud Webb. Yeah. You guys get it. Short guy dunking. You know, I can't believe I forgot about Nate Robinson. Uh, uh, I also, remember it. I just didn't think it was like as impressive in relation he won three times yeah i get it that's impressive i just mean based off of we're talking oh about yeah, elite. yeah not not top five anytime you talk five. about the nba andy just loses his oh yeah, mind yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you are sure. gonna get many many things wrong of course i'm and not just, a big fan of the nba right, of course right but he, he just can't rightfully so we, we so forgot much. about some great fucking years yeah that's true well <laughs> Well, how great does it well, make him in comparison if they, we forgot they about it? They great years. They were just impressive feats. Like Nate Robinson yeah. being yeah. able to dunk, period, is an impressive feat. Him winning the dunk contest three times, you know, it's notable. But, like, he wasn't, like, a, it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. Ain't that big a deal, bro. In the grand scheme of best of all time. Mm -hmm. Not up there. No. Just unfortunately, uh, there is a genetic... Uh, yeah. obstacle where it's like you can't do it Vince Carter I, I also fell down uh, the trap of Conrad mentioning hot sauce from the and one tour and me <laughs> saying he went to the NBA because that, that was that was the only nickname I recognized it was actually skipped to my Lou yeah Raphael Austin Rafer Austin Rafer. or Alston uh, that is who I used to play NBA 2k with so Sorry about that, Andy. I didn't mean to mistake these and one characters as if anyone gives a shit wow. um, <laughs> and then finally it was not Darvin Ham who blew out the candle on the backboard. That was just the only person I could remember that competed in the dunk contest that year. So, you know, sometimes you miss a little. Yeah. Some, I, hope, that, I hope Andy's right. satisfied. Look, I, mean, <laughs> I think you've got the shots that you don't make. Everything. Uh, 
Yeah. You know, we're out here sometimes. We take our shots. I'm not apologetic nice. at it's, all. This it's, is insane. It's so nice that we you forgot. could just admit that you're wrong. Yeah, just you know, a, you know, be be humbled like you are right. over there. Yeah. Just, God. Wait, you know, real quick. I need day. I need to interject. As you just yelled at. <laughs> what was the thing that you and Andy were arguing about where Next he Tuesday. said to you that he didn't actually say that you were right, but he said that he the rescinded, he, he he does, rescinded he doesn't know his what statement. An, he doesn't know what an altar is, so I said something along the lines of sacrificial lamb, lamb right. but at the said, altar. But but he he'll, he uh, stops at the fact that he says that sacrificial lamb at the altar is not a saying. Um Although it could be, but it's not. It's one. implied. The idiom is sacrificial lamb. Right. Where the sacrifice takes place is, is implied at the altar. At the altar. <laughs> uh, I just happened to, you know, fill Say in it. the gaps. But yeah, apparently Somebody's Andy thought sacrificed. Andy apparently <laughs> thought that altars were only for marriage, uh, which is probably not even man. He remotely hits, close. He to hits true. you with the mm. "You're not right. I'm just not wrong." Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, my nephew does it to me all the time. I'm used to it. <laughs> Um, but as far as like news goes, uh, huge shout out to a couple members of our community. Uh, first and foremost, one of our, uh, contributing content creators, Andrew Brokus got second Brokus. in the ACR. Was it a million? 630 million guaranteed. Million today. guarantee. Mm. Second place. Overlaid. Uh, what was second place good for that? Uh, 123. Six $123,000. That's nice, many dollars sir, for very 630. Nice. That is many dollars. And then uh, another huge shout out to uh, Bobby, a.k.a. Bobby Bread, our Bobby marketing Bread. guy. He got second place in the 1700 ring event out there in Florida. Bobby Lupo, $164,000. Yeah, they don't yeah, call Bobby other, Bread in, for nothing. In other news, we're going to need a new marketing guy. Yeah. <laughs> it was He's out the door. He quit. He has no. not put in his uh, two yet. weeks nope. notice yet. Nope. It was I, the aisle, Pompano, he correct? He wants to stick around. I think we so, hope yeah. he sticks yeah. around. Uh, Pompano, man, that, that place is always juicy. I mean, it's just pretty awesome because like everybody goes to Hard Rock. Yeah. Not everybody goes to Pompano. And what what a sick trip that would have been. Like I've gone to Pompano like ten times, never for tournaments, always for cash. And every time I walk through those doors, it's like walking into uh, a a retiree gold mine. That was <laughs> that was part of my stomping grounds when I first started playing poker. Mm. It was one two and two five at Seminole Casino, Coconut mm -hmm. Creek, and the Isle. Is Pompano in a down bad part of town? Uh I don't <laughs> I mean, down bad adjacent. Like the aisles, okay. Fine, it's, yeah. it's around. I'm sure not. I, like, I only ask country. because uh, there have been times where I've gone there to play like a big game, and I've had people that are like from Florida kind of be like, uh, "The aisles pretty sketchy." Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's definitely risks being taken. Well, there's when, always risks. We know right. this. Some a little more, more than, than others, others maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But you should be like you. You'll be all right. I've, I've put a, I've yeah, put a hand right. or two there. Just, yeah. Yeah, Coming right. from the guy that thinks somebody's going to kill him. And Relax. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I walked in the other day and uh, to, to paint the picture for the audience, the way our house is set up is the garage is off the left-hand side. And uh, so it's basically like um, to, to the left of the, the front entrance, right? So I come home and it's like 11 p.m. I'm getting back from pickleball. I go to open the door and my front door sticks a little bit. So you kind of got to put a shoulder into it. So of course my, my natural movement is to push down the latch and then put a shoulder into it. It's fucking locked. I'm like, damn it. I unlock it. I unlock it. Right. And, uh, I need to go charge my e-bike in the garage. So then I go to walk out to the garage and I pull the handle down, yank the door and it's fucking locked. I'm like, 
the fuck are we doing? Locking the garage, the door that goes into Locked the, the door garage. Door the garage doors are shut. <laughs> what are we protecting ourselves from here? And I go, I, the dementors. I, I just knew yes. immediately it was Landon. And I go, I go. Did you lock the garage door? <laughs> He's like, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man. We all, we all go through our existential phases. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm back. Okay. I was down sad. I was down bad, and now I'm up glad again. It okay. makes you feel any like better, that. Matt. Same thing happened to me in Florida. I had to jump the fence at our Airbnb. I do. <laughs> I do right. recall this happening. Uh, I had to pound oh, wait, your window. Wait, maybe that was Connie that locked me out. Was that you, Connie, that locked me out? I don't remember. All I know is I pounded on the window. Find me. Oh yeah, it was Landon. That was the second Airbnb. The first Airbnb. Oh, the one no, in Florida is the one he. Had to jump the fence. The one in you were pounding, you were knocking on the door in, in the Bahamas. Bahamas, right? Yeah. Oh, that had, I, I don't with, know if that had anything to do with me, but it no, might have. Probably did. Probably all of it did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see why locking the doors is a bad thing, but uh, not a bad are. thing. Here we are. But when you have uh, roommates yeah, you have with no keys, men in a house. I mean, and they're you know, and many dogs not home. Many vicious dogs. Very vicious. <laughs> vicious. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. I was walking the dogs this morning and. Um, there's this like, so basically the, the route that I take, uh, it's, it's like, I think it's two miles total and it covers like two city blocks effectively. Um, it's a nice square. It's easy, but scout, my little one is just so riddled with anxiety. Anytime anything moves that she just, you know, can't stop. And when we, when we pass other people walking their dogs, She's like, you know, 32 pounds or whatever. And Gatsby's this 70 pound behemoth pit bull that's just like smiling and panting. And she's like losing it. So I try to, I, it seems to make other people uncomfortable. So I try to like avoid walking uh, past other people when possible. So there's this midsection that like cuts through undeveloped desert land. And uh, I'm not trying to make this sound like I'm walking through the Serengeti. Like it's, <laughs> it's just like... You know, it's just a few hundred yards of like dirt, basically. Yeah. And there's a, a bit of a path cut through. So instead of walking the full way through, I, I cut through the, the sideway and I start walking through this dirt and we're like halfway through and all three dogs just stop like dead in their tracks. I'm like, that's strange. And I'm, I'm like uh, walking with my head down, listening to an ebook, making sure I'm like, you know, not stepping on any rocks or whatever. Uh, and I look up and there's a fucking coyote just right dead in the middle of our tracks. I'm like, Jesus Christ. So I like freeze. It freezes. It's staring right at us. And the only thought that's going through my head is like, Scout isn't quite big enough where she doesn't represent a meal to this thing. <laughs> Luckily, Newton Gatsby are, but like she's a little bit on the small side. So I immediately just like start backpedaling. And like letting the dogs walk behind me to, to take me out of the trail. But I like never take my eyes off the coyote and it just ends up walking away. No big deal. But I'm thinking like, what the hell is going on that if a leaf rustles, she loses her mind. If another dog walks by, she's like ready to tear off the leash to, to I don't know what she plans on doing. She's not going <laughs> to attack it. Like she, she's going to walk up and sniff its butt, I assume. But like the second a coyote fucking crosses our path, not a peep. Not a peep. Just sits still as can be. Like, yeah. oh no, I'm not in danger. danger. <laughs> yeah. Saw Cody Real today, danger. actually, like just leaving the house. 
Welcome. Yeah, to save Might Andy, to, to save Andy some trouble, I, I believe the Serengeti is actually the grasslands area of. Uh, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> I meant, I meant the Sahara. Right, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, but see, at least you knew what I meant, though. <laughs> I knew, I knew exactly what you meant. Yeah. But I knew he was gonna like message you like in like ten minutes, so I figured I'd just say. Honestly, I think there should be a segment at some point where Andy wants to correct everything I that we ever Andy, say. I told Andy he could call in at the end of every single show if he wanted to. <laughs> I just like do a rundown, like Stat Boy used to on. Uh, PTI. I, I would welcome that segment. He doesn't want to do the work. But I know he watches every day anyway, and he's doing it anyhow. <laughs> he just wants to do it for himself. He's right. like, dumbass said Serengeti. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> said spaghetti. <laughs> spaghetti. See, that's why LeMan is here, because he knew what I meant. He can just interpret right, for me. Yeah. I appreciate that. You need an interpreter. That. Everybody needs an interpreter. Everyone needs an interpreter. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, Key and Peele when uh, they had the uh, like, Key, uh, Key Michael Key played the anger translator. I don't think I saw it. The, so the only two good. skits that I very much remember Timothy. from Key and Pill are are uh, the the a Aaron skit, yes, where he's mispronouncing everybody's name. Be nice, Aaron. yeah. <laughs> and then the and I said, bitch. <laughs> yeah. He's like floating off into space. <laughs> yeah, which uh, if you guys have never seen it, basically it's like these two guys and their wives are like within earshot and keep leaving the room. And they act like, you know, super whipped whenever they're around. And as soon as they walk out, they're like, that's right. And I said, bitch. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, feels so good, man. It's very, so good. very funny skit. Very funny skit. Wonderful. All right. Let's get into some shits. Uh, two topics of conversation today. You guys tell me which one you want to talk about first. You want to talk about poker? Or you want to talk about weight loss? Mm, wow. Both wow. of these things are important to me. I understand. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm randomizing. Randomized. How about we skip yeah. the weight loss and go to poker? Rolled. All right, let's talk poker first. All right. <laughs> uh, so after last week's phenomenal display of uh, live streams throughout the course of the week, uh, a theme became very apparent throughout all of them. And that is the most entertaining form of live cash poker to watch is very clearly Deep Stack No Limit. Uh, all of these games were playing... You know, varying stakes. Uh, Live at the Bike was mostly 1-2, 1-2-4. Hustler, I believe, was 200-400. The Lodge was everything from 50-100 all the way up to 200-400. And then, of course, we saw the Poker Go Big Game, which was 500-500 uh, to start, 1K, 2K, 4K to end. So escalating stakes the whole way through. And yes, of course, the final day of uh, the Poker Go was the... Uh, you know, the, the, the real crescendo of it all where we got to see a lot of million dollar pots and things of that nature. But it was also the most shallow poker that we got to watch throughout the course of the week. So where there is excitement due to the fact that, you know, someone's going to be in pain, um, it wasn't it, or it doesn't build the same anticipation that you see in these deep stack spots where like anything can happen. You know, like Eric could just raise a flop bet in a three bet pot on eight three three get clicked back on then face a turn barrel and then just rip like <laughs> like that was that was a wild hand that doesn't no, he can only run it once right and then, like that's Not a that it mattered he's that, drawn dead that's dead. a wild hand where it's like that could never occur at 100 big blind stacks because you know the money's just all in just, way yeah, way way yeah, sooner right flop, and yeah. Yeah, like yeah, like I mean, the hands played differently with the hundred bigs, right? Like so, as deep as they were, Eric never has to go broke in that hand, and truly could have like gotten away pretty cheaply once the ace hits the turn, uh, because of the depth, right? But 
whenever you shallow those those hands out, start the start the pot with a hundred big blinds, let's say instead. Now all of a sudden, like uh, as soon as the eight three three two heart board comes out, he almost always goes broke, or at least loses a big chunk of his hundred big blinds, right? Um, so I think that that's like the the biggest reason, in my opinion, why the deep sack play becomes so fascinating to us as viewers, because the mistakes now become very obvious, and they lead to massive repercussions, and that's fascinating. Like we love the pain, the pain of losing hundred big blinds is just like you know pretty marginal. So with that being said, the greatest entertainer in our space, the man, the myth, the legend himself, one Phil Helmuth, who had recently uh, professed that he would never buy in for less than 300000 of his own money in uh, televised cash games, has rescinded this claim. Okay, everybody, listen. I'm going to buy in for whatever I want to buy in for on all live streams and cash games. I will buy in 300000 to 500,000 if I play high stakes poker. Other than that, all live streams, I'm gonna buy in whatever. I know I said before, I'm gonna buy in 300,000 of my own money. Nope, it was too painful. Losing 140,000 in one hand. If I'm up 140 and I lose with my kings to the ace king of diamonds on the bicycle club stream, then it's not as painful. But my own money, that hurt. So I know I'm rescinding what I said before. I'm gonna buy in whatever I wanna buy in for from now on. Tomorrow I'm playing No Gamble, No Future, and Tuesday as well. It's like he couldn't, okay, every could, like he couldn't conceive the fact that like if he bought in for 300,000 that he could possibly lose half of it. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think, I truly think that like whenever he said he would buy in deep, yeah. uh, on one hand he probably had like the, creator's game exactly in mind mm -hmm. and thought like well i can't get hurt right sitting deep yeah in that type of game mm -hmm. and then secondarily i think that uh phil's just like very accustomed to navigating risk in such a way that he probably <clears throat> incorrectly believed that he could control the size of pots the way money went in the amount of risk that he put forward and would just basically be able to play this trappy type of style that allowed him to uh, win big pots or lose small ones. Yeah, I'm going to plus one on that and think that there's definitely some sort of aspect of control where if you start playing super passive pre and start picking how you put money in when it comes to playing mostly the small ball defensive style, there is a chance you think that you have more control than you do where you play someone like Eric Hicks and he's just going for giga sizes, blasting money in, and you have hands that just have to kind of call and be in indifferent slash mm -hmm. slightly perturbing situations, you then become a victim of variance. Yeah, or you, you massively give up, or you give up massive amounts of EV when you just fold ace-king pre-flop because right. you want to try to control like what you're... And like, to be fair, point to, the camera, to, point to, to the be camera. fair, the ace-king fold pre-flop is... Uh, actually a lot better than the alternative of funneling a bunch of money in to only fold later right yeah, so it's uh, uh, and i'm not saying that it was good obviously it's not good right. um, i see what you're saying though but the ev of ace king in that spot is like maybe it's making a blind uh, not in the hustler game right tough With to say two wide three bets and too much i mean money it's tough goes to say because like jr is not too wide who was the original three better but yeah. like, what about but Keen? Keating cold calling, obviously that's <laughs> right, just yeah. dead money. Yeah. But like that's... for argument's sake, let's say at equilibrium, like it's it's winning very, very, very small, 
And in this instance, it might be winning slightly more. So like maybe we measure it as like one big blind, uh, which which is pretty substantial. Like one you're not going to hundred. Yeah, you're not going to pass on like uh, a play that's winning one big blind. Like as a professional, that's what you live for. Yeah, it's that's a, a weird big thing. Edge. But yeah. it's tough to quantify. But what I'm getting at is like um, realizing that one big blind win rate comes with being able to execute uh, a proper strategy that doesn't ultimately have you overfolding this type of hand class later. Uh, so if Phil just like kind of recognizes like I'm gonna get blown off here. I'm gonna flop ace high or king high. Not feel super comfortable about playing big pots. Well, here's where that's I'm, probably exactly what he was thinking. Right. right. Well, here's where I'm gonna kind of chime in. Where like there is some sort of effective strategy to be had. Where if you know that someone's too wide, there's also straddles and antes and more money pre plus the cold call. Where the cold call range is definitely way too wide. There is definitely an argument to be had of this hand is worth X in this hand right now and just if you're going to get blown off post just, just jamming yeah. oh yeah no for sure yeah. i mean jamming jamming would have been pretty insane he would have been shoving for like 25x the pot yeah i get it right but I if, understand you're not what gonna, you're if you're not gonna get blown off your equity and right. if jr's range is gonna be relatively reasonable and have some bluffs in it too obviously have some good hands that's, you're never doing too poorly that, that's kind of the crazy to shove. yeah i mean that's kind of yeah. the crazy thing is that uh you'll run into aces so infrequently that even the loss rate that you have the times that you get stacked versus aces compared to like let's call it the 40 big blinds that you pick up uncontested 80 plus percent of the time um you you probably just still like to land its point you probably just still demonstrate like a win rate yeah. Uh, overall mm -hmm. by and jamming not that it's the it's just not the optimal play. yeah, yeah it's, it's not just... the best play but at the same time neither is folding right so I think that this uh, carries into what I want to discuss as far as like the actual strat chat for today. And that is the effects of deep stack no limit hold'em. And uh, I, I want to kind of, I don't really want to get too deep into the weeds of like uh, what is the proper way to play deep. But instead I want to kind of speak about why it's uh, a completely different ball game. Why what we're witnessing um, may look a little bit foreign uh, for, from the audience's standpoint. And then finally, what the, let's call it what the, what the overall approach to deep stack no limit hold'em should be. Like what, what are the theoretical principles that we should prioritize whenever we are sitting a lot deeper? Because this is a trend that I've been predicting for quite some time. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I took it to an extreme way back when I was playing poker after dark and uh, I was opening large. I think I was opening like 4X or something like that. And uh, Rast made a comment to me where he was like surprised or whatever. And I go, whatever, man, I don't care if you, if, if we're playing uh, 100, 200, or I think we we're playing 200, 400. I was like, I don't care if we're playing 200, 400 or 510. I'm still opening to, to uh, 1600. And he was just like, well, let's play 510 all day then. And I go, Okay, so if we all play 510, 100,000 effective, you're going to start folding Queen Jack suited to my open? And he's like, no, of course not. I was like, yeah, that's the point. Like, your range is going to still be your range. It's not going to matter. Uh, yeah, now, that's a fair point. In theory, it would matter. Yeah. Right? If we were playing 10,000 big blinds effective, um, you know, preflop ranges would start to skew straight towards aces. Yeah, I was going to say, like... Because there's like, no reason to risk. He should, he sh he should fold. Like if if you're playing a hundred thousand deep and you're opening like that, he should just fold everything. Deep. Well, that that's the step one. Or, or or sorry, that's step. That that that's the addendum. The yeah, like the that, true story is you just shouldn't play the game. Yeah. Right. right? Like it, it's a silly structure. 
mm-hmm. is effectively what you would ultimately right, come course. down to. Yeah. That's it, why that game doesn't exist. Right. It would just be like if there were no blinds. <laughs> yeah. Like, if there were no blinds, you, you should only, only play, play aces. aces. Yeah. But if you're playing in a game that has no blinds, it's because there are people in there that aren't abiding by that rule. Therefore, you're going to play a normal range. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty similar that we see it on the Hustler and even the Live to Bike streams. <laughs> and, like, there's no gamble, no future that just came out where at the start, everyone just giga deep, but pots still escalate exponentially. Where in a normal uh, online environment, hands like that don't exist for the sizes that show up and the three bet sizes and four bet sizes. And you just see so much money go in the middle so fast right. where it's unfathomable to someone from the online arena. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think we could, uh, I, I don't think there's any reason to test this, but I'm very confident that if you took uh, a Monday through Thursday lineup from hustler and said, okay, guys, we're going to try a new format this week. No blinds. There's no dead money. Zero you would still see wild fucking play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, because definitely. people have value for the time. They're playing right. in the game for a reason. And most of those people there are playing recreationally. Yeah. So they want to play hands. They're not going to look down at Jack-10 suited when it's folded to them and say like, oh, there's nothing for me to win if I put money in the middle. Right. right? They're just going to put money into the middle because they have Jack-10 suited. Yeah. Like we're programmed to think through the lens of like hands that then, have certain equity they attached. They also to know them. that all the other players are thinking exactly. the same way. So it's, it's, it, like it's a it's, cooperative type of right. response where yeah. it's like, well, they know that I'm going to play more than aces and I know that they're going to play more than aces. Right. So we're all going to collectively agree yeah. that the blinds don't matter. Yeah. Right. It's a good thing for streams too, right? When it comes to streams, trying to create games that incite action because it provides entertainment and mm-hmm. then everyone's happy to, be there when it comes to the gambling perspective and then it's a nice show for viewers to watch because they see people put in money i mean we're, we're we're sliding off a bit onto a tangent but i do think it's an important uh point to discuss because uh it, it it's really this is a very important conversation for the young guys coming up that aren't coming from a, a gambler's background or a, an exposure to the gambler lifestyle uh understand that the people who offer value to streamed games televised games uh or even just public games that are good or private games if you want to try to get into that sector all of those realms are driven by the people who understand that we have a finite amount of time and we're here to gamble at least to some degree because there are two camps right if we remove the blinds there is a camp of people and there's a lot of them that would still play the game as though the blinds existed right and everything would just carry on Then there's a secondary camp of people that are wildly intelligent and only see the game through the lens of the math. Like strategists. Yeah, strategists, so to speak. And they would say there are no blinds, so theoretically, I should only play aces. And they may deviate off of that theory a little bit because they'll look around and say, well, people are playing more than aces. But they'll run home and lock some ranges and run it through Munker. And then they'll come up with opening 3% of hands under the gun, opening seven and a half percent from the low Jack opening 9% from the high. You know what I mean? Like they're going to, they're going to play this Uber fucking nitty close to theory style. Now you build new constraints, right? Where they're just absolutely only interested in removing EV or, or being an EV vacuum. Opening so to 9% speak. from the buttons tight? A little bit. <laughs> it's a tight. Even Kessler's Damn. loosened up from that one. All right, I'll bump it up to 12. Good. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that that's a point. Uh, I think that's something to really, uh, that, that's worth demonstrating 
for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it speaks to the environments that uh, everybody's best served to curate, right? Do whatever you want online where nobody can see each other and we're, we're moving closer and closer and closer to zero every single day. Like online is going to always push towards equilibrium just due to the nature of volume, right? Unless they can start to add some carnival elements of it that are so random that there's nothing you can do to find the equilibrium. Um, or right. that it incentivizes so much multi-way like play. Or bomb pot tournaments or whatever. Or if they just played like anti-only. Yeah. Right? If, if all cash games became anti-only. Now, most all uh, games are going to break because they're going to go five ways plus to a lot of flops. Right? It's going to be about seeing a flop and then trying to solve it out from there. Anyway, right. that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, the secondary aspect that uh, lends itself to this discussion is that... If we can agree that there's a group of people that will still play accordingly, if there were absolutely no blinds whatsoever, then we can agree that that same group of people are no longer rational actors. So they're not playing theoretically sound, right? Uh, and a lot of them probably aren't even going to consider theory. But even those in that group, and I would put myself in that group, that do understand theory and consider it, uh, are still willing to deviate off of the quote-unquote rules and principles in order to take advantage of those who aren't even considerate of it at all. Now, the way that this parallels us into this conversation of uh, what do strategies look like at depth is, again, the two camps. The solver camp, if we were to run uh, a, a spot for 2,000 big blinds effective in a solver, <clears throat> what we would see is uh, a, a very high frequency of passive play red lines would just like be greatly reduced or restricted i should say and blockers would now suddenly have a, a the utmost importance so two things would become uh heavily prioritized blocking power and board coverage so you would want to have hands that can be nutted by river and you want to have hands that can block the nuts by river and that's the game the whole game gets reduced. I mean, the game always gets reduced to the ace, king, queen game of polarization. But uh, at depth specifically, the whole idea is to risk as little as possible to land on river and then take hands that either can make nuts or block nuts by the end and just shovel in as much fucking money as possible. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that from the nuts or a tour game. Right. Where the highest DV option is just as many money as you can put in. Right. So, so what happens is now just in the, when you front load it, it becomes a race to polarization. So if the imposition player, for example, attempts to range bet and does so small, like let's say the SPR is 100, something super extreme, and uh, the imposition player attempts to range bet small, call it 10% pot, like super small, right? The out of position player is going to <laughs> respond often. <laughs> Uh, with calls because of, of course of the price but when it raises it's going to raise like 5x pot right and it's just going to attempt to reduce the SPR down to something where the polarized hands can be all in because that's the nature of the game no matter if you're 10 big blinds effective or a million big blinds effective yeah that's that's the algorithm that's the way the solver is going to function and try to suss out what the strategy should look like it's sort of why geostrats are becoming a lot more popular mm -hmm. these days because we've run more sims and been like oh moivi is 
gained when you can split sizes in position across multiple streets and then out of position well, to polarize well, more well. specific to that or, or i guess less specific to that more uh general to that is that the aggressive range always has poles so strategies will formulate around the polarization and then everything else will just become a blend yeah right so the primary strategy of the aggressive range is always the polarization uh the linear aspects are just the protections right so that's just where uh we are executing the multiple sizes to protect the polarization as well as still realize our equity in in effect with uh all these other hands that don't necessarily bucket into nuts or air right because sometimes <clears throat> you still want to bet hands that aren't good enough to go for the bigger polarized size so some spots are definitely one size only where you go for a call a two ear check but then there's other spots where the boards in a certain way where you have b50s or b25s or you have a mix of block b50 and go2 right. on turns where it just matters on the board state and the ranges and the path to polarization how different rivers might or might not change certain actions. Exactly, and that's why that's why depth specifically, because the SPR will still be large on the river, carrying those hands, those linear hands through that can be relatively nutted by the end are of the utmost importance. Right. So right? hands that can't be all in over the massive raised barrel jam don't play that strategy very right. often. They mostly play as protective calls. Mm -hmm. So when the other player goes for the giga bet on the turn you have hands that can still call and protect yourself right so what we see when there's a lack of depth call it sub 200 blinds is uh a lot of very linear strategies right so there's a lot of uh Shout to the upswing plug there, there's a lot you gotta love it you they're doing good work over there <laughs> Um, I was actually going to explain geo betting sizes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, when there's a lack of depth, you see a lot of like this pot manipulation, right? Like what we were talking about with Phil. There's a, there's a lot of using small sizes, large sizes. Basically, there's incentives and the strategies will formulate around them, right? Once you start to reach depth, though, now there's a, 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 a large compounding risk to putting money into the pot, period. Because it can always be responded by a very large counter, right? And that's the thing. Because it's no limit hold'em, there's no restrictions, right? So just because I bet 10% pot doesn't mean that you suddenly can't raise me 1,000% pot. You have the option to do that, right? And if we're deep enough, that raise of 1,000% pot might still leave us at an SPR of like 10 going into the turn. All right. There will so be some cool spots where... <clears throat> It's very narrow portions of range that want to take the max polarized option, mm -hmm. but there are certain fundamental ideas as to why the hands want to do that, where most of the time, if like flop goes check, check, and you just like have a set, right. where it's like, I need all the money, I have a set, and he checks, so I win, and then you just mirror around that, yeah. and you use hands that have equity. So if you do get called, you have hope, or you're just playing the straight blocker game where you have right, you know, right. So I, I would speculate in theory land, what ultimately happens is that rather than protecting our betting ranges, we actually start to protect our checking ranges more. Right. We'll see that with like someone that's obviously like 
amazing at poker, like Kuhn, where people will say he's extremely more of a defensive counterpuncher type versus the I'm going to shovel in all the money and make you fold later type of guy. Type yeah. of guy. And honestly, for what he, what he specializes in, which is high-stakes MTTs, that makes a ton of sense because you're not playing three-straight poker all that often. So, so putting yourself in that position to outmaneuver the people who are on the aggro side of things while still maintaining traps for those uh, situations where you know that your hand is worth three, but you don't have three streets of bet left, you know, it, being able to massage in that way is, is <clears throat> of a tremendous value. It's why he's world-class. Uh, the way we see that translate now over into, into depth, right, is uh, we recognize that once we add enough depth, the game does start to break down a bit. So everybody who's operating in theory land doesn't really have as clear of answers as they used to. And if you try to apply your 100 big blind strategy or even 200 big blind strategy to being a 1,000 big blinds deep, what ends up happening is you, uh, you, you, you kind of disregard equity thresholds. And what I mean by equity thresholds are there is a certain amount of equity necessary in order to shovel a lot of money into the pot right? And as depth increases, that threshold goes higher. The reason is, is that when your opponent counters with aggressive action, the equity that you thought your hand had greatly decreases. So if you have ace king on a seven deuce rainbow and uh, you go to C bet it, you're in the upper, upper third of your equity distribution. Like you're easily uh, probably close to 70% equity, right? And too good. Yeah. But when your opponent responds with a 10x raise, <laughs> now all of a sudden the equity of ace king goes drastically down. Right. Right. Especially when <clears throat> instead of looking the game at the game like I have ace king on a seven deuce and you face like giga raise, they're now saying they have two pair plus. Correct. And ace king doesn't beat two pair plus. So now you have to be a little bit uh, careful. Right. So now the equity that ace king possesses against the two pair plus range is you know maybe thirty percent, but. They also have bluffs, and the equity ace-king possesses against bluffs might be like 80%. Right. right, and the more chips somebody puts in the middle, the more careful you can be about defending, right? So it's not like yeah. someone can just bet with impunity, so to speak, because if you're protected, you're just going to have good hands sometimes where they go for giga raise, where like, say you have aces in position on ace-seven-deuce, and you see bet small, and they go for giga raise and start blasting where aces stay clean. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to have aces... X percent of the time, which protects me, and they can't just fire it all off and win, right? So to speak, right? So, keeping with that theme, uh, we see this play out naturally, and I noticed it very much so in the uh, cash for Titans, cash of the Titans, cash uh, on Poker Go. They're playing ultra deep day one. So they're playing 500, 500. Everybody's at least 500K effective. So that's a thousand big blinds, right? Um, you know, day two, they're pretty much all a million effective playing 501K. Again, a thousand big blinds. This is hella deep, right? And there were countless spots, countless spots where guys would flop a hand that's worth three streets. And what would ultimately end up happening is that they would backload two big streets and forego the opportunity to even get three streets because they understand that at depth, the thresholds for which people are willing to bluff catch drastically decrease. Now, this, is a by, this isn't actually a byproduct of 
uh, them understanding necessarily what the theory is or the players being hyper aware that they have to be more cautious with hands that they would otherwise consider strong if, if they were shallow. What it is, is risk aversion rising to the forefront. They just value a million dollars. Way different than they value 100K, right? So now that that's on the forefront, the desire to play a big pot, way, 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 way down. And I think we're going to see this happen uh, if this game goes on Hustler in May, where they're planning a, a million dollar buy-in. I think we're going to see one of the nittiest games you've ever seen. But do we know what the, uh, the blinds are? Like how deep it actually will be? Uh, I don't know. I would imagine it's going to be 1K, 2K. Yeah. And honestly, I would imagine... Like 500, 500 yeah. big blinds deep. And, and I would assume that we'll, what we'll ultimately see is the game will play very, very, very tight for a few hours. And then they'll single, double, triple straddle to get the stacks down to like 100 mm -hmm. big blinds or less. Yeah. So there will be collisions for sure. And someone's going to get hurt. But... Also uh, depends on the lineup as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if like, yeah, if Keating plays, it's obviously going to be very different than if he doesn't. Um, but like, yeah, if it's going to be like the MJ types and people who are pretty sharp with this kind of stuff, uh, you know, th this is why you'll see pros wanting to make the game bigger in situations like this where they're super deep, is because uh, the worst players in the game are now playing too cautiously. So you could redline them to death early in the hand, but your value gets wrecked in that regard because now you basically have to play a split strategy where you're bluffing early and you're delaying value. Mm -hmm. And that works until it doesn't. Right. You know? Well, like what these guys are doing is like they are kind of protecting themselves in the early stages of the hand to, to get value that's, later on, right? When they're deep. That's the result. Right. But the reason why they're doing it, the incentive behind it is that when it comes queen four deuce and they have fours, they know that king-queen doesn't put in three big bets. Right. Like, king-queen just won't call the third time. And the first bet's going to be relatively small, right? So, like, whenever it goes quarter pot and they call, and then the turn is, like, you know, a nine, and they pot and a half it, sometimes king-queen's just scared and folds there. Yeah. But if they stick it through and call, and then the river's just another deuce, and now fours obviously has to go for value... Uh, it almost doesn't matter what size they choose because the logic of the person who's bluff catching is what bad hands take this line. I lose the kings, I lose the aces, I lose the sets. Uh, and queen even. Yeah, and I lose the ace queen. Like I'm beat by all these things and I only really beat bluff. So anytime that you put a uh, non-theoretical player in a position where they only beat bluffs, they almost always across the board fold. Because they just haven't been bluffed enough in their in their time. Man, I would love right. looking at Ace Three suited there and just ramp. <laughs> it's the one, you know. It's a good it's one. It's the one. And I mean, largely, like that's that's how I've profited in my career is that you know I've built up enough face equity that I will get that call, mm -hmm. uh, at least maybe more frequently than like Robo, where like Robo fought four sets in twenty hands. And he checked the street on all four of them. Yeah. And he folded a set when Ra or someone had a flush. Yeah. Folded top seven, someone had a flush. Very correctly so, right? Because so, when you so, can... So sick. When you can... When, when stacks are so deep that nobody's willing to stick their neck out on a line and now ranges become bounded where it's just straight value, uh, you can start to make some insane folds. And that's why the hand that Phil played versus Eric Hicks is like so remarkable. Because uh, the turn is questionable as is. Uh, 
sure, Hicks is a madman and he's going to be blasting off a little bit more than most. But the guy just went like three quarters pot, then full pot on a monotone board. That's scary in and of itself yeah. enough. And you have no diamond. But even if you make it through the turn, the fourth diamond hits, and now the guy bets third pot. Like, what could he possibly have? You just you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't <laughs> manufacture a bluff right, in this spot. No. You just couldn't. Yeah. Like, he might have black aces mm-hmm. that you know you maybe feel like is a bluff, but you have you have kings no diamond. Yeah, like he certainly isn't going to show up with jacks there. Right. Uh, his worst hand probably uh, it was a queen high board. His, his almost certainly his worst hand is like top set of queens. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. you know, he might have a hand like jacks with the jack of diamonds, or if he's way fucking out of line, he might show up with a hand like ace X offsuit, like ace jack offsuit, ace of diamonds, ace, you know, king offsuit, ace of diamonds, something like that. Uh, but the whole point is like, that's the nature of depth. When large sums of money start to voluntarily get put into the pot, fewer and fewer and fewer bluffs show up right. because it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of understanding of the game like and the how ranges to navigate will shrink way down. And it's usually pushed towards but value, the value is always value. Yeah. Value yeah, right. always. That's the thing is right. va- value it's, it's is never, static. It's never equal to like you Correct. have this much value and this much because value is static, right? right? Value mm-hmm. is just understood. Everyone right. knows a good hand. Is. Right, right. Right. It's very easy to know what a good hand is. It's hard to find the bluffs. Correct. Or it's yeah. not even hard to find a bluff in some case, but it's hard to pull triggers when mm-hmm. it's for more money. Well, that's, yeah. Like one of the sickest folds I've ever seen was Robo folding ace queen with a diamond versus uh, bet, Darkest. small bet, uh, big bet. He's just like, yeah, I don't really win because you're betting a flush and I don't really see the bluffs here. Well, he ca- well, well wait. He <laughs> called the big bet on the turn with the queen of diamonds, rivers the ace yeah. Yeah. to give him now top pair, effectively top kicker, faces another big bet and says like, oh, I wasn't drawing to the ace. I was drawing to a diamond. And in reality, he was actually drawing dead. Darkest had flopped the king high flush. Yeah, he like turned to flush yeah. and then river. Uh, yeah. he, like he peeled because Darkest bet like 25. 25%. Yeah, he bet 25, uh, flopped 25 turn. Yeah. So it's like, okay, my hand's just too good to, to fold yet. I can still win with the diamond, but then mm-hmm. Rivers an ace and faces big bet. And it's like, well, I mean, I know in theory, I'm sure he's a fucking genius, right? He's a smart guy. He knows that this hand doesn't fold in theory. But of course. Like, I know that their bluffs probably aren't congruent to the value that takes this line. I was so, so I'm just out. I'm, I like, so, I I'm like, I don't know how the fuck you fold this, but you're the best. Yeah. <laughs> I was so reinvigorated uh, watching that all play out because I, I had just like completely forgotten how I tainted you. <laughs> you, didn't t- you didn't tape me you, you you helped me a lot in a lot of ways like you've opened my eyes to a lot of uh technical aspects of the game that i otherwise ignore but i was better served ignoring them in the, in the live realm i'm sorry like legit uh so I mean, i've always studied the game from a from a very holistic point of view right like i always look at it from a top-down approach and uh in live i was just very well served at stopping at the meza Mezzo air, uh, sorry, mezzo layer, right? So like understanding the game at the hand class level, understanding the game uh, with like bucketing how certain hands categorized according to board textures and things like that, but never really delving into the micro aspects of like uh, how much do we weight this blocker versus that blocker um, blind and then populated it out to blind versus button and then, you know, all the other positions and, and then eventually got the full ring and, 
Uh, same thing in any sort of hand analysis. It's like specifically how do these suits and combos and everything else interact and what are the frequencies I take? And then you build that out into a grander strategy. So he opened my eyes to a lot of things. And from that, I gained a ton of fucking confidence playing against tough players. But I lost a lot of edge playing against bad players because I'm too loose now with my aggression, with my calling, with uh, all of these things due to the nature of what we're talking about, specifically because we're playing deep. If we were playing 100 big blind poker, I would be 10 times better of a player than I ever was. Yeah. Right? There's a difference when you're playing uh, versus unconstructed ranges where you know bluffs are harder to find, where in theory, it's like, yeah, of course you bluff catch, but if you start adjusting and tweaking some bluffs that don't actually exist, mm -hmm. the hands that are indifferent or even winning become indifferent slash massively losing. Yep. And that's where the uh, art meets the science of figuring out where the buffs come from, if they exist, and at what percentage do the buffs actually come in for the sizings that they choose. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that really is the, the difficult realm to navigate, right? Is understanding uh, the population tendencies and how it, will disregard theory and what those adjustments look like because when it comes to when it comes to these uh these deep stack situations what we can agree with so everything we've been talking about here is like what it would look like in theory well in actual practice uh there's a blatant disregard for depth right there's an inherent uh over regard for risk where people are just scared to put a lot of money in the middle, but they blatantly disregard depth. And that's why we see all of these highlight hands coming from these streams, right? We don't see the Tritons, uh, the Triton cash games or these other, you know, scenarios where like it's the fucking best of the best, cream of the crop, battling it out. We don't see highlights come from that because they just play very solver approved, right? And they are very mindful of the depth. When we start to open it up to people who aren't all that studied, who are just kind of out there fucking winging it and willing to gamble and shit like that, we start to see thousand big blind pots with one pair. We start to see what happened between Patrick and Eric. Uh, we start to see um, a lot of scenarios. Even even the biggest pot that was played on Hustler, the Nick Airball versus uh, Clicker hand. Oh yeah, where set straight. Airball flopped the nut straight and Clicker flopped a, a set. Most live players would have gotten away from Clicker's hand. Yeah. Airball just doesn't really possess bluffs ever in that especially Airball because like you know if if you watch enough of his tape it's abundantly clear that like his mouth is looser than his actual play. In in most instances when he puts in heavy aggression it's because he's patiently been waiting for a good spot to just kind of have a very very high equity hand. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, having top set in that spot where it's like you still beat some value in some, some senses too. But that's the thing is that I, I don't think you do because people are so cautious when it comes to risk. They also don't want to play an all-in pot in a single raised pot with a set there. Was this single raised pot or was it three bet pot? Pretty positive it was single yeah, raised. Be, but anyways. I mean, here it is. Uh, I think it's a three bet pot. Who three bet? Uh, Nick from Big Line. I mean, we're on the turn here. So like, it's impossible to know. But I highly doubt that he three bet five four. I think 
Yeah, it looks like he three bet four or five clubs. Yeah. Okay, well then that's that's way different. I take I take back what I said. If if he three bet five four of clubs, then of course yeah, you go broke with sevens. Yeah, he did. That's what I figured. Um. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That that that's way way different. Um. So I take it back. There's no getting away from this. Like, it's just a straight I mean, cooler. In the real sense of like how much money goes in, right? They're playing one, two, four. <coughs> he opens the two K, so I guess there's a straddle on probably. And now you're playing one, two, four, eight with a big blind ante. And now there's all this money. No, you always go broke here. You like lose. It's three bet pot. Like this is way, way, way yeah. fucking different. Well, I'm just saying from the sense of if sixes and threes don't exist, right? You still lose to the normal hands, but if Aces, if overpairs exist that just triple it off for this, then yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have the lose. second nuts. Something has to, something has to be doing something. It can't just be <laughs> yeah, five just four. Five. Now we're range. playing the game, right? We're but it's playing... way different. When I thought he defended the big blind, yeah. like it's just five four. Sure, of course it's different when there's a big blind. But now if we're saying that people are only funneled to nuts or nothing, and you have the second nuts, but isn't wouldn't like seven no, five no. just be a better call then? No, like theoretically, then no, I, I don't think so. No, 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 definitely not because you, you're you're conflating two ideas. I don't think I am. Yes, if this were him defending the big blind, he's only going to have five four, because that's just clear value, and he wants to play a massive pot with it. But whenever it's a three bet pot, his range is largely devoid of five four, and it's going to have other hands that want to get value, want to protect, like this is a scary board, yada, yada, yada. And now it goes back to that whole notion of people generally have blatant disregard for depth when it comes to overvaluing their specific hands. So on one hand, they're very risk averse and don't want to shovel a bunch of money in with like, you know, bluff catchers. But on the other hand, when they're the aggressor and they have a hand like aces, they just have a tendency to overplay at depth. Yeah, that's fair if we're allowing those hands to be in range. But now well, he three bet, they have to be in range. Right. But after bet what happened here? Bet raise all in? Or just bet all in? Uh they didn't get in until the turn. Well that's what I'm saying. I think it's, it was like bet call, bet well, raise, jam. That's what I'm saying, bet raise all in. And where it's like I'm operating under the instance of if not in this case specifically, right? Obviously no one's folding sevens, but I mean, if we're operating under the standpoint of people don't put in money without the straight nuts and we're, we're counting that he's smart enough to know that aces multi-way versus big bet call isn't actually worth all of the money. It gets a little bit scary if they only have nuts and don't have bluffs. But if he's has yeah, I, I think the ace scary. five of spades, if he has the hands that can still do that stuff, then yeah, obviously yeah. never folding. I think in three bet pots, people are going to tend to have the natural bluffs because ranges are just so narrow. Um, and like having a hand like ace five on that board texture, where ace five is a, a a gut shot, and then turns you know potentially the nut flush draw, like that's that's not that difficult one for him to find. It is a weird thing to say, though, when we make the statement that people are inherently risk-averse and then putting an infinite amount of money, even if it's a three-bet pot, right? Well, risk-aversion uh, speaks to the, the linear aspects of ranges, right? Nobody is risk-averse with the nuts, right? Yeah, it just depends Except on maybe what you assume the nuts <laughs> but is. That's a perfect fucking example. Perfect fucking example. Helmuth, super risk-averse, until he's not, right? So, for instance, he gets limp raised by Eric. Or sorry, he gets limp four bet by Eric. Super fucking deep. And knows that if all the money goes in preflop, he's against aces. Because of depth. 
So he plays trap with kings, right? Risk averse. Because the fact of the matter is, like, the guy fucking limp raised. Like, whatever, man. He's just out of line. Like, if you think he's out of line, put in another bet with kings. No big deal. But there's that back of your head risk aversion of, like, I have the second nuts, not the nuts. So I'm going to play this very risk averse. Then he catches a horrible flop where he's outflopped by worse hands and is still losing to the hand he was afraid of pre and just loses his, muck, his fucking mind. Just calls off all of the fucking money because he's now overvalued the hand. Yeah. He's overvalued the trap. He's overvalued the hand. He's disregarded depth completely. He ends up putting in almost $200,000. So almost a thousand big blinds in a hand where... Uh, he was dead from the start. Yeah, well, we know that's entitlement tilt, right? But that's, I, I'm saying that I think that that represents a big, big, big part of live poker. A big part of it. Is the entitlement tilt? I don't know if you want to qualify it as entitlement tilt or not. It's just a, a miscategorization of equity. Like, this live King's definitely poker hits players, muck on turn in theory. For sure. Live poker players do not understand equity. Not in a measurable way. They understand it in a, an emotional way, right? Kings, Which, Kings was very high up pre, and that emotional attachment has already gravitated to the hand. Correct. The emotional attachment leads to entitlement because now you feel like you deserved more than what you actually are. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I guess the reason why I don't want to speak to entitlement is because uh, I don't think that the thought process is necessarily always that I deserve this pot or I have to, it's more so rationalizing uh, why this hand is still worth as much as it was many streets ago. Yeah. I mean, we can call it whatever we want, but right. in the sense of, oh, I had Kings and then I five bet and then ace comes. How unlucky am I? I'm still going to bet. And then when I get raised, sometimes still. Yeah. Put more there, chips there, that's in the another great example. How many times have you seen the guy who's way too fucking tight in game Put in the fourth bet, get called, and then have it come ace high and blast for pot. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like, to imply that that's the yeah, case. Uh, what I'm more so speaking to is uh, why I think Hellmuth now deciding to no longer buy in deep is... Uh, I respect him for it's it. Wise. I, I think mm -hmm. it's very wise, yes. Sure. Um, but more importantly, uh, when, when scaling that out, why it's very critical for live stream games to continue to... Uh, press upon their, their players to buy in deep. Yeah. It's the absolute most free form of No Limit Hold'em. It's as close to we have as uh, the shackles being kind of taken off and even those who are incredibly great at the <clears throat> game being misguided by theory. Yeah, because what you will see at higher stakes and at depth live is you'll see a fight or flight response from many people where most people will go for flight where it's like, I don't want to risk and lose this much. Some people, quote unquote, lose their minds, as we would call it, mm -hmm. where Eric saw a big pot, sees queen nine of hearts, sees a turn that isn't actually really good for Patrick's range, and then Patrick still puts in a bet and goes all in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? And that's what we love to see. Right? Yeah. We love to see as a spectator, but it's not something you love to see as a quote unquote strategist where now you're seeing, oh, this is completely out of line. Right. And th there's also a lot of other elements, right? Like people come in all different shapes and sizes. So there are, uh, th there are the people who uh, I'm trying to think of like guys that come to mind that, that play these streams a little bit more regularly. Um, what are you looking for? I can try to help. Uh, like people who splash around but don't necessarily put in a lot of aggression pre. Callers instead of three betters. Mm. Um, like the Bob Brights of the world 
you know, even uh, like Justin Young would be a good example uh, of a pro that kind of plays that sort of style. It's a lit C3. You mean like kind of like Daniel? Daniel to a degree. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I think Daniel's changed his style sure. a bit. Yeah, I mean, he still roasts me about the ace four, ace five. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. see you. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm specifically talking about like deep stake cash or deep stack cash rather. Yeah. Uh, so when you're like basically being a thousand big blinds deep is very forgiving of preflop. Um, you get to a degree where uh, you can just kind of see three and put people in the fucking bin because now on most board textures, like two pair and sets are always going to be available and one pair of hands just shrink up for the guy who's a thousand big blinds mm -hmm. deep playing a single race pot multi way. You know what I mean? So it does kind of create this this uh, allure, so to speak, of bingo being a bit incentivized. Yeah, it's a funny thing that you say that because there's so many people that I know that will ask me about poker and say, what about the people that have so much money and they can just have any kind of hand? Isn't that hard to play against? And honestly, at depth, with a lot of money and on the line the yeah. answer is yes yeah there's like a tremendous uh a tremendous degree of reverse implied odds with a hand like aces when you've telegraphed that you had aces you can't and prove. you're still super deep right yeah and right? it's not that there's no ev to be gained but it comes to finding it and strategically playing correctly right that becomes a challenge and it is challenging to play against by its nature yeah if you're call it ten thousand dollars deep in a 510 game and it goes open the 30 three bet to 90 and you have aces in the big blind and you make it like 300. <laughs> You're still super deep. And I'm the guy yeah. on the button who made it 90. I called dark because there's $650 in the pot. Right. And you now have to play this spot at, uh, you know, 18 SPR. Yeah. And I know you have aces or kings. Mm-hmm. God, Godspeed. Right. And this doesn't work when you're playing shallower where it's easier to get the money in right. because the implied odds disappear. And honestly, there definitely is some form of greater implied odds practically than theoretically, mm -hmm. especially in these deep stakes right. uh, live spots where you know if you make a hand and someone has bought overpair, the money just goes in because they have an overpair right. where it's... This is a tale as old as time that I don't think like the online guys really understood, but uh, a big reason why live players for the longest time didn't care about position and didn't care about uh, taking these really fucking bad hands that don't show down that well and seeing flops with them, uh, specifically like small pairs, for example. The reason why no one cared is for uh, two reasons. Number one, if you hit, you got paid. But number two, because of depth, you knew a street was going to get checked. <laughs> like you were almost always yeah. going to overrealize by like a half a street or it's, more. It's so yeah. funny you say that because I remember someone uh, in the chat a long time ago put that they saw Nick uh, Shulman play a hand live when he was younger mm -hmm. where he jammed all in as a bluff got the fold windmilled fours which was like an underpair to the board. I'm assuming in some of these, some of the Something along the lines where now it's like a reasonable type of bluff sort of idea. Yeah. Where he was probably thinking along those lines of he's going to check at some point. I'm here to play ball. Yeah. It's like yeah. that. That's how it works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like you see a check and you see red and live poker is very much a dance uh, where poker in a vacuum studied under the microscope of theory is very much a, a science. So like when you talk about that science art uh, aspect of it, like <clears throat> we use the science 
to uh, create better tools, better paintbrushes, better canvases. But uh, it's it's the man in the arena that has like the greatest vision for what the final artwork should look like that does the best. And it's you know it's largely predicated off the fact of just having intimate knowledge of your opposition and their weaknesses, their tendencies. Yeah. It's definitely the in-between between art and science where the artists themselves that neglect the science are at a fault. Mm -hmm. And then the scientists that neglect the art are also at a fault. Yeah. And the answer is somewhere in between. Because if you start doing the whole, I'm going to float any too dark at infinite SPR against the machine, like you're playing straight machine, you're going to get blasted. Sure. Right. But if you're playing where you know the constraints of ranges and you know how people act and have some sort of insider info, you can then start making unprofitable decisions profitable. But it won't work scientifically. It will only work practically it will work scientifically it just takes renegotiating the parameters sure you have to you can click and choose what you want from the boxes but yeah if you look at like straight theory ranges or whatever and then you're outside of it and you play that spot enough times yeah i, I think that i think the issue is that uh we still struggle with the language around game theory and what that actually means to uh practical strategies right so like we say something won't work in theory well, all theory is uh, is malleable, right? So it's all predicated on the parameters. So uh, when we say it won't work in theory, what we're actually saying is it won't work for a general equilibrium that we've all kind of agreed upon, right? right? For a certain set of parameters that uh, we've either discovered to be logical or we believe to be logical. It's out of construction, if you will. Right. But the second that we, uh, the second that we open up the parameters and say like an irrational actor has entered the arena, <laughs> but warning sign, <laughs> but we have some clairvoyance over, over, uh, his construction for X, Y, and Z action, right? The second that we actually are able to ex examine that, then we can get answers as to whether or not it truly does quote unquote work in theory. And, and oftentimes I think you'll find that it does. Right. Theory is if you have the, just call it, have the solve preflop ranges and then you run a script, right? It's like a bunch of unchecked boxes. If you're playing someone you don't know. Yeah. I think the way to better speak about it from a language standpoint is to say that it doesn't work in principle, but it works in practice. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because the principles that we've derived from theory are all just based off of our current vision and the tools that we're able to utilize in order to better sharpen that vision. Um, but we still lack the overall scope of all the possibilities. Right. The funny thing is, is in principle, common sense doesn't matter. Correct. But in practice, common sense is everything. It's invaluable. Where you see somebody that's never five bet before in their lives start five betting you. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, in principle, I should still have some bluffs here. Mm -hmm. But common sense says, warning, like, <laughs> warning right. sign. Yes. Yeah. yeah, precisely. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, think, I think these conversations are very fun for me to... Uh, to kind of throw out there and go down the rabbit hole because they they really do marry the two aspects of poker that I appreciate and enjoy the most. And on one hand, it's the the psychological human aspect of it and how much weight and value that actually holds. And then, you know, there's there's a second duality that is in direct contradiction to all of that. Yeah, I mean, Conrad says, and I enjoyed listening to it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it was fun. Uh, but, but, Great times. But the second aspect of things, and they never uniformly work, 
right? There's always an because in-between. every individual's parameters are different. Yeah. My body's different from your body. My intelligence is different from your intelligence. My environment is different from your environment, right? All of those variables <laughs> are going to drastically adjust the model and sometimes even break it. Yeah, that's why blueprints are blueprints. Right. And not Facts. actual structures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you guys want to talk a little bit about fitness? I like fitness. Not a lot. Depends. I don't know. I got a tournament to play. Yeah. We can save it. <laughs> save, well, well, we can always come back tomorrow. Let's talk about fitness. Fuck. It won't be long. No, it won't be long. Um, so I think that uh, the jumping into uh, this topic comes from uh, Doug's recent transformation. Uh, I think like he deserves infinite accolades for the transformation he went through. Uh, for anybody who didn't see, he made a bet with Bill Perkins, $200,000 that he could lose half of his body fat percentage over the course of a year. Uh, if you guys recall, a few years ago, I actually made the same bet with Christian where I laid him five to one. That's how difficult I think this is. I thought, uh, I honestly would have bet pretty heavily against Doug when this came out. I was, I was not super vocal, but I was like pretty adamant that uh, he was going to be embarking upon an incredibly challenging journey that I thought he was a pretty sizable dog for. Um, but I didn't really want to bet. I didn't actually want to go forward with the bet because I didn't know what the stipulations were. Uh, obviously the bet becomes a lot simpler if he's able to use any sort of enhancements and, and whatever. And I didn't want to get into their own personal stuff. So like, whatever, <clears throat> however you do it, man, you fucking do it. If you can lose half your body fat, God bless you. You know, uh, I made this bet with Christian and he was sizably, uh, larger than, than Doug. I think Christian ultimately had to get down to 18 and a half percent where Doug had to get down to like 14 and a half. Yeah. Maybe even less, maybe even slightly less like 13, 13. Yeah. 13.8. Um, and for Christian, uh, and this is how I knew this was going to be a challenge for anybody that embarked upon it because body science just matters so fucking much. Christian undertook it and he took the approach of, I have a lot of fat, so I'm going to lose a lot of fat. And he worked out hard, but his big emphasis was not on strength training or muscle building so much as it was just fat loss. He was at a massive deficit. Cardio type stuff. Uh, I, he was doing some cardio. He was doing some weight training. He was doing all the things that he needed to do but he wasn't doing it in a structured way where uh, had he realized that um, what he was really doing was coming off of an extended bulk mm -hmm. and that strength training was paramount because the big thing is that in order to get lean, you have to have lean body mass, I, a, AKA like lean muscle mass. And it's not as simple as converting fat to muscle, right? It's, uh, it's for a lot of us is a lifelong process. It takes this is why I would have bet heavy against because it takes a long time to truly build up enough power and strength to take on enough load that you can then begin to, to, to exchange fat for muscle. Yeah. The recomposition process is definitely more difficult to just, Oh yeah. Lose Especially weight. if you're starting from zero, yeah. right? It's different. If like you had lifted for 15 years of your life and then fell off, you'll get those strength gains back quickly, which means you'll now be able to, uh, to achieve like overloading the muscle consistently and grow, uh, pretty rapidly yeah in both christian and doug's situations they shrunk right and that's necessary if you're if you're obese or, or overweight or whatever but uh you know for both of them i think what it doesn't translate to is 
uh, a, a loss of body fat necessarily, at least not at the rate that you wanted. Christian lost like 80 pounds. And I remember uh, his DEXA, he was like only down 9%, maybe 8% body fat, something like that. So like he had lost like, you know, a, a sizable chunk of the weight that he needed to shed and his body fat composition was almost unchanged. It was still in the 30s. And I was just like, man, that's got to be like enough. Defeating it's it's sure. so demoralizing because like what more can you do? And uh, at that point, like, you know, he's three months in. You're not suddenly just going to get super fucking strong yeah. in the next six months. Like it doesn't work that way. So I saw Doug kind of, uh, I, I don't know what his strategy was, but like the way he was speaking on social, it seemed like he approached it from a similar mechanism where it's like uh, the idea is to lose body mass. Yeah, right? I'm definitely curious to know how his thought process changed from start, middle, end, and how his training regimen changed from start, middle, end based off of that. I'd be curious to know if he would have done it differently if given uh, a second chance, regardless of the results. Like, I know he missed. Uh, I think he was like 2% too heavy or 1% too heavy, something like that. Like 1.3, 1.5. Yeah, something really along close. those lines. Um, but I wonder if, if he recognizes that uh, maybe there was a more optimal strategy. Uh, because well, he switched it up, right? And like, he, I think, started, he started in like with like some nutritionists and some trainers and... He didn't like where it was headed, and, he, and so like he, I think he actually gained body fat or gained weight, and so like then he just like got rid of all of them and did it on his own. I, I honestly, uh, the the little bit that I know, I would have said I would have stuck with them. Yeah. At least, at least now in high, like I think that that's the right approach. Well, you kind of put some more weight on, get stronger, and then you recomp from there in some regards. Well, you don't or... intentionally try to put weight on, yeah. but you don't eat at a deficit. You have to build strength. I get strong. You have to build strength. You have to be able to move weight in order to start to uh, exchange body fat for muscle, right? Like you want to be anabolic and you want to be in this fat burning process. Uh, what I don't think people understand, I think they think that it's like this one-to-one -one ratio where like if I'm eating at a deficit, I'm using fat for fuel. And on top of that, when I'm working out and burning, uh, that said fat for fuel, I'm also converting into muscle. And it's, that, that's not the way the body works. At least not the like, ratio that works for everyone because some people are sure like, genetics are pretty sick and other yeah. people, uh, it does more than Well, others. the people with sick genetics are going to be hard gainers. So uh, they're, they're rarely going to have excess fat to deal with anyway. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Because I know for I was on the same side as Doug was when I first started all my shit where I was on the, the impression of if I lose a bunch of weight, uh, I'll get strong. It's very, logical. I didn't really get. It's logical, but it's kind of incorrect. Uh, like, I, did I get stronger? Yeah, but it's also because I had so much excess weight at the time that doing anything from nothing is just going to get you stronger. And, and strength. Uh, so it's a measurable. It's actually a measurable um, at, attribute, right? So strength is relative to where you were previously. But if we look at the strength numbers in accordance to your weight, you probably didn't get that much stronger, mm -hmm. right? Like you were probably just like super weak when you were fat and then you regressed uh, as you lost weight, that strength just kind of maintained. So it looks like you're proportionally getting stronger in accordance to your weight, but you're actually probably just kind of level. Yeah. I mean, Cause last year was the first time I've for one rep, one rep max, like benched more than my body weight for the first time in my life, which for most people, at least from the sports standpoint of things uh, do that when they're pretty young, so to speak. Mm -hmm. If they're in the gym, like on a program X amount of times a week, 
uh, doing all the right stuff. Where in reality, maybe that was somewhere close to the max that I could have benched at the time when I was as heavy as I was. Right. Where it's like you got stronger proportionally, but you didn't actually move any bigger weight. Right. Right. Sort so the idea. strength the strength numbers actually changed the same, but, or stayed the same, but the uh, amount of weight that you were able to <laughs> press according to your actual body mass. Right. Uh, I, uh, I had a friend in high school who played like O-line. Uh, where he also lost like infinite weight, weighs around the same as I do now, but he played high school football for four years where he can like bench 315 for reps and I can't even do that. To, I can't do that to save my life and like go half a rep. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, I'm just inherently weaker. And right, and a lot of that was born out of him having that strength when he was a heavier weight. Right. And then as he was able to cut that weight off, the muscle retained uh, as did his strength. Right, because right. you lose some muscle, obviously. You don't, it's it's lose- impossible not to atrophy at all. Right. Right. You, you can, you can, you, your body would just, your body would just break down. Like nobody has that sort of healing power. No one's a Wolverine. <laughs> so it's impossible to 1, just be in a constant HRV. state of motion <laughs> without uh, achieving some level of atrophy. Yeah. Um, but the, and this, this carries me into the, to the uh, final conversation that I want to have. There was, uh, there was an article that Peter Tia put out. Uh, and actually, I guess prior to mentioning this article, uh, Lin G wrote a blog post about uh, utilizing a, a new weight loss drug called Exempic. Um, and I believe that the, uh, the category that it falls under is uh, a GLP-1 um, receptor. Uh, so, sorry, a GLP-1 receptor uh, agonist or yeah, agonist. Uh, and what that means is uh, they, they use it for diabetics. So right. GLP-1 is uh, a marker, I believe, for diabetics that um, I, I can't remember if it's low or high that indicates uh, that your insulin levels are, are going to be out of whack. But basically, this is a regulatory drug, right? So it's used to regulate uh, the, the insulin uptake and ensure that they are at healthy levels. Uh, they found like a lot of really positive uh, feedback from utilizing this in diabetics, in uh, controlling their weight, in controlling their insulin, all of these things, right? So there's a huge, huge upside to it for those who affect who are affected by uh, this disease. Um, but it became very trendy, especially in LA culture, to now utilize it as uh, a weight loss drug. So effectively, um, Ozempic is the the commercial term for it. Uh, I believe it's sepiglutide uh, is the technical term for it. Um, it's ultimately just an appetite suppressant. So to varying degrees, depending upon the dosage that you're on, uh, you'll go from either having no hunger whatsoever to uh, actually like feeling nauseated, um, you know, if you eat, when you eat, whatever the case would be. Basically, it, it allows people to reach a caloric restriction that they otherwise couldn't naturally reach and maintain. Right. It's basically performance enhancing weight loss, but kind of. Yeah. But there is a catch. Yeah. There's, always there, a catch. there's a catch. So uh, I, I want to frame this before we before I dig into what the catch is, because uh, another thing that's really trendy now is intermittent fasting. And for anybody who's curious on the science behind intermittent fasting, uh, I, I highly suggest uh, looking at um, uh, some of the stuff Peter Atia has done 
as well as some of the stuff that Rhonda Patrick has done. They're like forefront when it comes to intermittent fasting. The, it's the, like the Mount Rushmore fitness, where yeah. it's like Peter Atia, uh, Huber, Huberman, Huberman, Rhonda yeah. Patrick. Very smart people. But yeah. uh, the big the big takeaway from intermittent fasting, uh, amongst all other things outside of like, you know, glycogen uh, reduction, uh, insulin regula uh, regulation, all those things are, are byproducts of it. The number one thing is it reduces inflammation in the body. So the idea behind it, if you uh, fast intermittently, is that uh, you'll be less carcinogenic as a whole, right? So like uh, your body will have less inflammation, which means less or fewer bad cells uh, in it, which means a less likelihood of developing cancer down the line. That's that's the nuts and bolts of intermittent fasting, right? There are plenty of other benefits, but like that's the main one as to why uh, people are incentivized to do it. Now, the obvious pushback then is like, well, if it's okay for you not to eat for three days uh, when you're taking on uh, an extended intermittent fast, why is this drug that has you at a caloric deficit so bad? And the answer is in the deficit, right? So it's not about long windows of, of suppressing your appetite. Uh, fasting in and of itself is very natural to us. We're feast or famine creatures. We've always lived this way since the dawn of time. And uh, there are actually a lot of benefits to taking extended periods of not eating. The problem is, is when you're at a, an extended deficit, you switch your body into starvation mode. Peter Atia wrote up this uh, nice article about uh, a study that's being done now on Ozempic and uh, the people taking it and how it actually translates over into the weight loss. And I thought this was relevant, especially given uh, Lynn's recent blog post where uh, she was saying like, you know, I'm not a doctor, but here's my anecdotal experience with the drug. Uh, I find it to be wonderful and all these reasons why. Um, what's being overlooked is that anytime that you are eating at a caloric deficit for a long period of time, and this takes me back to Doug as well, what ultimately ends up happening is that your body will begin to atrophy at a rate where it effectively starts to consume itself, right? So yes, you will lose fat, of course. Uh, that'll naturally be a, a byproduct of it. But overall, what you'll lose is just mass as a whole. So your body doesn't just naturally break down fat into glycogen. It will also break down protein and muscle into glycogen and pull from those stores as well in order to fuel yourself. That's why if you find somebody who's like stranded on a deserted island or if you watch Naked and Afraid or uh, Alone, they get really skinny, but don't get really lean, right? Like it's not like these guys are just like fucking ballooned up by the end of it all where their pecs <laughs> are popping and their, their right. biceps are bulging, yeah. right? Like that's not the case uh, because their body is in massive atrophy and uh, it's constantly consuming whatever muscle it has. That's why there's such a drastic, if you ever watch these survivalist shows, there's such a high importance placed on accumulating protein consumption. Man, it's actually so true. Cause I remember looking at even just like survivor, not even just like alone, but yeah. like mm -hmm. survivor where Same you're thing. on the Island yep. for X amount of days where I used to always think like, Oh, GTO strat, like you definitely just want to like look, look ripped as fuck. But the real, truth is you're not going to be able to eat as much as you can maintain right. mm -hmm. so there definitely is some strategy to having more weight on you at the start mm -hmm. and then for your sure. body will oh, yeah, use yeah. that for to sure, atrophy sure. and then you'll get to right. uh, you don't want to come in there lean as fuck that's what garrett said he yeah. said that he as soon as he got off the plane on survivor he knew he was dead he's like oh, fuck he's like <laughs> i was eating a bodybuilder's diet before i got there mm -hmm. i came at like you know 10 to 12 percent body fat and i just realized immediately i'm fucked yeah, yeah. Like you just can't starve when you're just, you know, chiseled. Right. It's crazy. Cause like 
theory in that game already exists to winning and losing where like that stuff obviously changes mood and it's not yeah. really great when you're at this like resting 10% to just get no food and now you're mad and cranky right. where it's easier to be mm -hmm. mad and cranky when you have no food. Yeah. Right. You're just used to X amount of calories you a day and you have to socialize with everybody else because they're going right. to vote you off yeah, the then island. Then you have to be you're nice cranky. to people. Yeah. And then you have to be nice. <laughs> Sometimes they like, even give throw me some fucking food. Sometimes they hate you so yeah. much they throw your food reserves in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I remember watching that Tahoe. Uh, so legendary. Um, so, uh, the the reason why I bring all this up is because this Peter Atiyah article is uh it, it's very telling, but it's 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 obvious it's very obvious to me, I guess. For anybody who's like studied body chemistry, body composition, and has some interest in the science behind it, uh what should be abundantly clear is if you're taking an appetite suppressant, then you are going to be under consuming your calories day over day, which also means that your body is going to be reaching for something else for fuel. One of two things is going to happen, or maybe both things, uh, depending on how long you extend it. Uh, either your metabolism is going to slow down greatly and your body's going to try to get more efficient with the amount of fuel that you're feeding it. Right, things is in starvation mode. Right, which also puts it into fat storage mode, right? So uh, in that instance, you're going to lose lean body mass or, uh, or I should say, and um, the second thing that will occur is that... Um, Outside of the lethargy and, uh, you know, your, your body kind of just like shutting itself down and, uh, you, you know, ensuring and protecting the amount of fuel that you're taking in. Uh, the, the second thing that will occur is that uh, you'll just have a natural loss of mass as a whole, right? And there will be some ratio of fat to muscle there. And I think that the misconception is that this is a cutting agent, right? Uh, people used to use stimulants a lot. Hydroxy cut, remember? Yeah, hydroxy cut's a good example. Yeah. Uh, that that was that was just a, a front loaded stimulant. So it had caffeine. Caffeine was like the the bare bones of it. Right. Uh, whenever they finally like put it out to the public market, but I want to say that it was like almost like a greenie at one point, where it was an ephedrine. Yeah, uh, and like you know, it was it was banned across. Was it a proprietary blend or was it very transparent? They're all proprietary blends, bro. Yeah, <laughs> they're all proprietary. That's the that's the thing about supplements is there's no FDA overseeing it. Right. So they could just put like proprietary blend and throw whatever the fuck they want in there, and nobody's ever going to tell. Um, but as this ratio breaks down, so it's not a cutting agent in that regard, right? So as this as this ratio breaks down, what ultimately happens is you'll get skinnier, but you don't get leaner. And this is a very dangerous uh, thing. Uh, and the, the article that uh, Dr. Atia wrote um, was talking about this study where they had 147 people uh, contribute, I believe, some, somewhere in that neighborhood. And what they found was that 39% of the mass that they lost was actually lean muscle mass. Wow. Right. So you're losing wow. muscle and losing weight where not, it looks like not you're... the goal. So if, if, you're losing, right. if you're losing fat to muscle at a three to two ratio you're doing yourself a far greater disservice as far as like getting lean goes than if you had just stayed as was mm -hmm. right uh sure you're losing a little bit more fat than muscle but you're also just like losing a lot of lean muscle mass which is a problem right um, isn't that why we see in some cases with the uh abuse of peds where your body gets reacted to a new norm that when that gets taken away you start to if you're not doing it correctly uh feel a lot of side effects that can become pretty damaging based off of how you look aesthetically too. Yeah, so what you're talking about is the the imbalance of body chemistry, 
And anytime that anything gets out of sync, right? Like say you go from having testosterone of 1500 down to testosterone of 500. Well, that's a whole brand new body chemistry, right? And the equilibrium that your body's going to try to find there is going to look very different. Right. So of course, you're just naturally going to lose a lot of lean muscle mass because you don't have the, the chemistry behind it uh, to keep things intact, right? And there's a lot of fallout there, whether you're talking about mood or emotions or uh, cognitive ability, uh, physical performance, all of these things go into great decline. Yeah, there's a bunch of things that uh, get wrecked when you start trying to fill the void of hard work and yeah. labor. Yeah, so I guess like that was the conversation that I posed on Twitter. Uh, I only bring it up here because it's obviously of a huge interest to you and I, but uh, I want to just... Me too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're living the life. You're on the triple P diet. It's Pepsi, pizza, and popcorn. And Pepsi, pretzels. Pepsi, pizza, popcorn. Pretzels, yeah. not popcorn. Oh, yeah, it's pretzels. I remember it. It's, uh... And puffs. He likes to puff. Yeah, he does. I don't know what you guys are talking got about. got that fucking... Me and my boy, talk to... Got that, got that goddamn pen over there. Just out here, Hank, chilling, you know. Um, but yeah, like the the big thing I wanted to, to, or the discussion I think that there is to have is the difference between optimization and uh, shortcuts that are inefficient, right? Uh, so this this to me seems concerning because people who are already in relatively good shape may view it as a cutting agent, where it's actually not. Uh, it kind of does the inverse of of cutting. It's it's truly just a weight loss drug and it's not the miracle drug that it presents because no humans no human on earth can exist on uh on on a um what's the opposite of surplus deficit deficit there we go <laughs> on a deficit of calories over a long period of time what ultimately happens is you'll just reset or your body will change in such a way that if you're if you need 2000 calories to operate every single day and uh, you go six months eating 1800, your body will recalibrate itself so that 1800 is the new norm. Yeah. yeah. So you'll become more lethargic. You'll require more sleep. You'll be less active. You'll be less strong. You'll, you'll possess less muscle. Muscle requires more calorie. So it breaks down muscle, right? Like, uh, gotta eat big to get big. That's right, baby. RP rich. That's right, baby. You should um, be fucking huge by now. Me? <laughs> Dude, so uh, funny you say that. I started my call it weight gain phase uh, mm. since last year because i got all the way down from 230 yeah. of that year to 183 right and now i weigh 196 okay so i'm trying yeah. to like slowly put the weight on yeah. eat super clean mm -hmm. lift heavy weight definitely lifting heavier which is nice to see more muscle means more better yeah more muscle more better eat big <laughs> get big that's the strategy that's 2023 for me in a nutshell yeah. there you go move weight baby let's do it push some heavy ass weight about to move some fucking chips around Bopo's in the gym he's about to yeah. move the weight too thank you for Picking that uh, music off. Yeah, is that a new thing? I like that. <laughs> yeah. Guapo, you well, got Guapo's some, ready to get the fuck out. Guapo just got some fucking power on. over there. I need to get some fucking Guapo fucking Maracos or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Praise the guns. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for us today, you guys. Uh, don't forget, we have a Poker Out Loud Academy uh april 15th to the 18th that'll be the finer poker out loud academy for the year still a few seats available if you're interested head to academy.solferwhy.io be sure to sign up immediately as there are six seats left i believe maybe five uh also we have our only mtt academy for the year it's going to be may 26 25th may 24th to the 20th to the 27th Seven. yep uh four-day academy it's going to warm you up for the wsop matt hunt is going to be the lead instructor for that one 
lectures in the morning, gameplay in the evening. Uh, you guys are going to play all the way down to everyone will make a final table. You'll have to deal through those ICM situations and learn a lot about how money's made in the MTT world. We'll be back again tomorrow, 11 a.m. Pacific-ish. We'll see you guys all then. Peace. Later.